0: In July 2020, the U.S. Congress passed the Resilient Manufacturing Task Force Act to identify critical vulnerabilities and supply chain risk in U.S. manufacturing and develop plans to mitigate them. Dr. Thorsten West, in your new book, Digital Supply Networks, Transform Your Supply Chain and Competitive Advantage, Disruptive Technology and Reimagine Processes, you discuss the reimagination and digitalization of complex demand supply systems. Can you share a particularly striking example of this?
1: Absolutely. Uh, happy to, Jeff. And thanks for having me today. While digital supply networks are a relatively new concept, I believe, a great example of of a company that accomplished that is, is in my opinion, Amazon. They really redefined customer centricity and are really digital first. So much so that today, when we think of customer expectations of next day delivery and great customer service are often referred to as the Amazon effect. And they accomplished that by really having a digital core that utilizing technology, but with a vision of, of how to deliver customer service.
0: And making sense of digital supply networks is what we'll be exploring today's conversation. Welcome to the Knowledge Institute podcast, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. I'm Jeff Cavanaugh, head of the Infosys Knowledge Institute, and today we're here with Dr. Thorsten West, Assistant Professor for Smart Manufacturing at West Virginia University. Recognized as one of the 20 most influential professors in smart engineering by the Society of Manufacturing Engineers, Thor is a global authority who has shaped and defined smart manufacturing from the start. His research emphasizes interdisciplinary and a holistic approach to analysis. He's published three books, written over 130 peer-reviewed articles and almost 2,000 citations. His work's been featured in Forbes, Futurism, the World Economic Forum, and he's been awarded his PhD in production engineering from the University of Bremen, Germany, in 2014. And many other accolades we won't get into at this point. Thor, thanks so much for joining us. Smart engineering and smart manufacturing is a cool sounding term, and I think it's it's gradually become in the vernacular. How did you come to gain expertise in this area, and, and what made you go this way instead of just, just broad manufacturing or broad materials?
1: First of all, I grew up in the southern Germany and then studying industrial engineering. Manufacturing is omnipresent. I didn't realize it at the time, but southern Germany has a rich manufacturing heritage. Uh, We all know Mercedes, Porsche, Bosch and so on and so forth. So it's really in the culture there. And Germany prides itself as a high-tech manufacturing country. So I guess without knowing it, there was always exposure to that field. However, it was not really until my, my PhD uh, where I had the chance to dive deeper in the analytical aspects that are nowadays associated with manufacturing, making it smart. The timing of my PhD and, and when I uh, conducted all the research was pretty much aligned with the, with the start of what we call Industry 4.0 and smart manufacturing today. Another thing that I guess helped um, shape my interest here is that I was always, and still am, interested in the broader picture. Uh, as you might have seen in my CV, um, I actually have a master's in international business from the Auckland University of Technology in New Zealand, where I also met my wife, actually, and uh, in addition to my engineering degrees. So as smart manufacturing and in Industry 4.0 is an inheritedly interdisciplinary discipline, and the mindset is crucial for such a diverse and complex field, I guess that's that's my long answer to this short question.
0: <laughs> that's all right. That time of 2003, 2004 was certainly very exciting. I think the uh, the beginnings of what we're calling Industry 4.0, a lot of the supply chain had gotten smart. A lot of the sensors had just burst in the scene. And of course, we were just on the cusp of, of the smartphones starting to democratize data. What is it that you've seen in, in manufacturing that's gone from what it was which wasn't dumb manufacturing it was just manufacturing to maybe smart manufacturing during that time what has been the one or two biggest things that you've seen changed
1: i think you make a great point it was not dumb manufacturing in the first place the intelligence was just uh, solely in the in the heads of the operator and i think the biggest change is our ability to collect store and manage data on the one hand side, and then to process it on scale, like with cloud and distributed networks where we can collect a bunch of data and then make sense of them. And that was not possible before. And in that sense, we are now able to scale that intelligence that was previously associated with experts on the shop floor and hard to scale. Now we can scale that across location and time.
0: You've been at West Virginia for some number of years. And so you've now had a chance between your beginnings in Germany your studies in New Zealand, so in Asia, and your time in the U.S. to get a pretty global perspective on manufacturing. What are some of the things that you've noticed, some of the aspects that are different between the regions, and especially what does that mean for for today going forward?
1: That is a, a very philosophical question, I guess. Let me start with, even within countries, the, the perception or the approach of manufacturing differs between industries, between between regions. But one thing that I, I, I think is rather interesting I'd like to share is when we compare, for example, the, the US and Germany. In Germany, a lot of the leading manufacturing companies are still family-owned and they're extremely high-tech. And my personal belief is it is connected. Because this mindset of being family-owned and having that long-term, you know, not four years or or to the next quarter to deliver great numbers. But hey, what do we want to do in the next 20, 50 years? It's crucial to invest in your people, invest in technology, investing in where you want to be and develop these capabilities. And I think that that is more and more incorporated in the US mindset as well. So I'm very, very happy to see that, especially with the with the manufacturing USA institutes, they do a great job and bringing in that, hey, you have to invest and you have to build these capabilities, you have to build these skills. I mean, you're the knowledge institute, so you have to build that, that knowledge capability within your most valuable resource, and that is your people.
0: So you're saying even in the cold, crass US that thinks about, or the stereotype is this every
1: quarter cadence,
0: there are still some similarities with the long-term thinking like the family-owned longer-term businesses in Germany?
1: Yes. Some companies do not appreciate that. And I have that shareholder value type of mentality which is not per se bad i'm not saying that i'm just saying uh, in some instances it leads to to short-term decisions that hurt the long term but there are examples we have one here in morgantown a great company doing special projects for dod and the special forces and they actually they turn down projects when it doesn't align with their vision and with their approach of exciting their engineers so they have that long-term perspective and they treat their people well they stay uh, so they don't have to replace them, retrain them. They can continuously work with them. And that's a big competitive advantage because you, you build your market leadership through that.
0: We'll be referring to uh, your new book, which is called Digital Supply Networks, published in late August 2020 here, several instances along the way. One of them is you make the distinction between advanced manufacturing and smart manufacturing. Can you highlight the differences?
1: Yes, and uh, and I guess that's, that's kind of something... Um, I kind of tried to coin myself because I was always confused by the exchangeable use of the two terms. And in my mind, it's both connected, but one is more on the data side of things like artificial intelligence, machine learning, and so on and so forth, which is smart manufacturing. And the other side is more on the processing side, like the physical side, like advanced processes, like additive manufacturing, laser cutting, and so on, which are, of course, also data-driven and data plays a big role in controlling these advanced processes. But the main focus is data, and your physical processing. That would be my approach of differentiating.
0: Bit of an ITOT thing with information technology and operational technology.
1: Which makes it more complex because yeah, uh, smart manufacturing is defined as the convergence of OT and IT, right? So yeah, terminology still have to be figured out, I guess.
0: <laughs> it's evolving. This all sounds very mechanical. It's manufacturing, it's your products, it's data. What is the human element in smart manufacturing systems?
1: Well, that's very easy to answer key it's the key it's the most important piece of the puzzle and and i believe i cannot emphasize that enough when we look back at one of the first definitions of smart manufacturing human ingenuity was one of the three key points and i'm a big proponent of that when we can automate more and more cognitive and physical tasks but i believe we cannot replace this human ingenuity this human ability to problem solve to invent to create therefore i believe well, I'm convinced that AI and robots will not take all our jobs in the next few years. Tasks may change, but jobs will remain. And the jobs will be more fulfilling and more humane when we, when we are able to automate the dangerous, repetitive, and boring tasks. I'm not sure if you had that experience, but I, during high school, I worked at an assembly line and had to stock shampoo bottles for eight hours at night shifts. That was the moment when I decided maybe I don't want to do that all my life. That's a job that a robot can do excellently.
0: Well, it's funny you mention it because I've been in hundreds and hundreds of manufacturing plants pretty much all over the world. Not quite Antarctica, but about every other continent. And so, yeah, I was particularly excited to have this discussion. And yes, from early days, it's been interesting to go from a a scenario where you can literally smell the grease in the dimly lit cavernous manufacturing facility. I won't give the dates or I'll date myself here. All the way to what's almost like a Tesla Elon Musk clean room. As the robots are evoking, you know, Terminator uh, references or uh, metaphors, what do you see, since you mentioned the human element, as different for the people today, the, the manufacturing worker, as compared to maybe 15 or even 10 years ago?
1: Again, uh, now I'm, I'm speaking for the US uh, in this sense. I think and I hope. Well, we're working towards it, that the perception of manufacturing as a career has changed, that it's conceived as a fulfilling career where you can work with technology, where you're basically working in a high tech environment that requires skills that is well paid, provides security and most of all adds value to the society because you're basically adding value in your job. You take a raw material and you produce something that somebody wants to purchase. And I think that's one of the most fulfilling things you can do. I don't want to play down our medical workers and uh, other service providers.
0: Even so, the moment you add supply chain to your definition of smart manufacturing, then you are enabling, they're enabling the medical supply chain oh, yeah. and the health and the first responders as well.
1: And the methods and, and tools you can you can apply there. We, a lot of our graduates, they, they end up in, in healthcare systems to optimize the flow, the scheduling, use the resources better. Resources are always something we don't want to waste, right? I mean, that's, that's one of the key lean principles, reduce waste. And uh, waste in processes is not just a manufacturing or supply chain issue. That happens everywhere.
0: It is exciting to see lean and kanbans and pull systems applied to hospitals and scheduling. And uh, I I won't take us on a different path, but I've been part of that in the past. And you're right. It's amazing. Since you mentioned medical and responders, when the next black or maybe gray swan rears its head, how do we avoid the global supply chain shocks that we've experienced in the aftermath of COVID-19?
1: Well, I believe critically looking at how we do things today will be a big part of that, right? We saw that uh, our supply chains were not as resilient and agile as we, we hope to be. Uh, even for critical products like PPE, pharmaceuticals and so on. And when we think in the future, we have to see, okay, how could we mitigate that risk better? And I believe, and I guess that's also the message of our book, even so written before COVID, it's probably now more timely than ever. How can we increase the transparency visibility of our supply networks, which includes two sides? One, the transparency and visibility that allows us to, to predict disruptions. Like swan events are uh, inherently hard to predict, obviously. So in that sense, the transparency that allows us to rearrange our supply network using other other sources, using different nodes, uh, local suppliers and, and retool suppliers. But we need to know where these capabilities are. We need to know how to reach them. And we need to do that in a in near real time. And there the digital core becomes essential that we are able to exchange data and understand the data that is exchanged based on semantics and and the right formats.
0: I remember when we met at uh, the IoT conference, I think it was in, in San Diego, you had mentioned this transition from these local, not dumb, smart factories to the <laughs> industry 4.0. What are people doing today where they're just not getting it right? And what do you see are the two or three things that manufacturing or supply chain leaders can do to overcome them?
1: One thing is to, to approach it from a technology push side, saying like, oh, we want to put robots on the shop floor for the reason of putting robots on the shop floor. That's not a good reason. When the CEO says, hey, I want robots on the shop floor because he wants a nice picture for the press, uh, well, then let the marketing department pay for that robot, right? We have to approach that from a different perspective. We have to look at it from the side of, okay, what are the problems? What is our vision? Where do we want to go? And how does technology add value to our processes that we might have to adapt? And then the second thing that I believe will help to go beyond that, what is it called? The prototype valley, or there's a term for that. I forgot it right now. Prototype
0: purgatory or pilot purgatory.
1: Purgatory, exactly. In my experience, it's uh, to not just focus on the long term. That might be your your overall goal to say, hey, in five years, we want to be there. Plan ahead and have short intermediate wins built in. That can be little things saying like, oh, we improved our visibility by adding a dashboard. So you always know where XYZ is, which does not probably have the greatest impact on on the bottom line or the value is not that transformational. But it will keep people on board and it will keep the CFO writing checks to make sure that the long-term vision is not jeopardized by Hey, you've worked two years on this project and all we see is this data model. What about that? So keep that in mind. We have to be realistic. It takes time to implement these complex new systems, but we also have to keep the business environment in mind and make sure that we align with the politics and the human side of things that we want to work towards short-term goals as well. So aligning these twos is critical. It's not, not trivial.
0: Absolutely. Once again, we're here with Dr. Thurston West, expert on smart engineering and digital supply networks. Thor, can you give an example of a manufacturer you've worked with recently that has has taken that step from pilot purgatory to adopt at scale?
1: That's a good question. There, there are a few companies out there that do that. Siemens and Rockwell are, of course, special companies because they do both. They produce themselves, but they also provide the technology that allows this interconnectivity and data-driven smart manufacturing on the shop floor. So I think they're kind of like the leading edge, but I would take them a little out of the equation because they have this double role When we look at Tesla, it's always an interesting example because it's so controversial and so unique in its its approach. Over the last years, I always discussed that with my manufacturing classes. And I don't know exactly, I think one and a half or two years back, Elon Musk uh, always tried to propose the dark factory. You know, like, oh, we automate everything and uh, we reduce the human element on the shop floor. That's nothing new. That was tried a lot in the 90s, uh, again, in the early 2000s. When we look at the automotive shop floor nowadays, you see a lot of people. And there's a reason for that, because there's the optimal degree of uh, of automation. Not everything needs to be automated. That does not make sense. And they realized that rather quickly and pivoted. So now Tesla adopted that understanding that had realized this this limitation of automation and still uh, moved forward and, and grows at an amazing pace, uh, implants, new technologies. And I guess what really makes them so agile and able to adapt so quickly is that they're digital at its core. Like it's a digital company that manufactures cars, but it's a digital first company compared to a lot of the traditional companies that try to venture into the digital space. But they inherited a large history, which is great advantage, obviously, but it's also disadvantage in, in this transitional period.
0: Since you mentioned Tesla,
1: Elon Musk said that the supply
0: chain stuff is really tricky, very scientific statement. What is unique about digital supply networks, which happens to be the title of your new book, and how can this help people?
1: Elon is perfectly right. It is extremely tricky. And if I have to break that down, I I probably break it down in two key points. Digital supply networks describe the transition from that linear supply chain model uh, towards a network of customer-centric capabilities that is fueled by data and technology. So it makes it more more agile and more resilient because when we just take that model of a chain, there's always the saying, hey, the weakest link is is the one that breaks the chain, right? In a network, we have nodes. And just this abstraction again, you take one node out, you still have a network. network, can adapt. The digital supply network has a similar principle when we think about that. You have these different nodes that are connected digitally, exchange data, and therefore there's a better visibility and transparency of all that. The second point I'd like to make is that our book is a careful balance between providing the fundamental knowledge that decision makers need to to make informed decisions, and also a playbook that provides a, a framework how to approach this transformation for your own unique situations especially aligning your tactics and strategic goals. And again, I I mentioned that before. I want to just make sure that that's very clear. Digital supply networks are are not pushing technology, but we understand that technology is necessary to realize the capabilities to to fulfill these customer-centric capabilities.
0: Do you think that the supply chain is on a scale of zero to 100? I mean, maybe zero to 10, one to 10. Where do you put the digitization or digitalization of supply networks? If If one is all paper-based or smoke signals and 10 is fully digitized, where do you put the global supply chain?
1: anywhere between zero and 10, because there's a huge diversity in, in supply chains, I guess. We see that from industry to industry. When we work with automotive suppliers, they all have their ERP systems connected. They have the same CAT systems than their OEMs, because they're large OEMs that basically demand their supply chain to follow their lead. On the other side, we have as you said, the smoke signal type of supply chains where the truck driver gets a piece of paper signed, they scan it, they send it half across the globe to have somebody type it in a database, literally. And that happened last year. It's not from 10, 20 years ago. And then send it back. Everybody knows that this change of medium is introducing errors and not even to speak of the speed, how data is collected and can be analyzed. So I guess I cannot really put a single number to that. It really depends. But unfortunately, in average, I guess, it's around a six.
0: So what you're saying is, for the stats nerds out there, that it's a wide standard deviation, even <laughs> though it's in the right direction. Exactly. Which, <laughs> as Six Sigma aficionados will know, that CPK, that variability, can get you in the end as, just as much as the defects.
1: <laughs> that is very true.
0: What's the economic case for digital supply networks?
1: Evolve or get extinct, to be frank.
0: <laughs> so it's more than incremental. It is existential.
1: Yes, and in, in my mind, yes.
0: Can you share a a few hard metrics or interesting benchmarks or rules of thumb that you've come across in smart manufacturing?
1: Hard metrics are always hard, (laughs) Uh, hard to share. Two of the co-authors of our book are from Deloitte Consulting, and they worked with countless Fortune 500 companies and smaller companies towards transitioning towards a digital supply network. So the business case is there, I believe. Second, when we take the current COVID-19 black swan event, we could see that companies that more closely resemble this digital supply network vision with a heavy emphasis on the digital core, again, Amazon, Tesla are great examples, they fared significantly better than the less agile, less resilient competitors out there. Again, Amazon is in a special situation because, of course, with the lockdown, people ordered like crazy. So the industry, we have to count that out. But uh, when we think how they use AI vision systems to track their operators and make sure that they socially distance and trace their connections, that company can do that because they built Echo. They have AWS. You know, they have the capabilities and these capabilities create opportunity to react and then stay in the market and grow stronger while others struggle.
0: Capabilities create opportunity. Nice. What should the C-suite, what should business leaders do to drive a transition to digital supply networks?
1: First, don't fall in the trap to just push for a certain technology because you read it in Forbes, you read it in the MIT technology review and think, hey, we need AI because the others are doing it. Again, stressing the picture of the CEO shaking a robot hand. Talk to your shop flow operators, talk to your production planners, talk to your supply chain managers, what they struggle with, what they observe and then build that vision. Think about both tactical, like the short-term objectives and struggles and the strategic vision uh, in terms of value and measurable goals. I guess that's, uh, it has to be said, it's pretty common sense, but we can't uh, repeat that often enough. Do not expect that everything goes as planned 100% from the start. This is an organizational learning experience. Things will go wrong. It, this is complex stuff. Like You can't expect the project to always uh, adhere to the timeline that everything works from the start. Fall down, stand up, do it again, learn from it. And don't be shy to get help. Partner up with startups. Startups are seeking partners where they can get first revenue and get data and show their capabilities. Uh, work with academia. We always like to help and then get practical examples and data sets to test our theories. And consultants, I mean, they have experience from different industries in that, and they can help to at least facilitate the vision and change. And remember, I think for the C-suite, that's key. Remember, we are running out of excuses like we didn't know extremely fast.
0: As of the time of this podcast, a couple of months prior in the U.S., the Congress passed the Resilient Manufacturing Task Force Act to identify critical vulnerabilities in the supply chain. How will this help supply chain risk in the future and plans to mitigate these risks?
1: First of all, I, I was extremely happy to see this materialize. Manufacturing capabilities are crucial for the well-being, long-term stability, and security of this country. So... That is a big step to be recognized from the leaders of both sides and both the Senate and the the House. That's great. There's a commitment to manufacturing and that includes supply chain, obviously. This is the first step, I believe. I'm excited to see this broad support again. It will address some of these issues that the COVID crisis exposed, but they lingered around for a while. COVID just exposed them. So it's it's not that everything was golden before. It just, it worked somehow. On the, the other side, there has been some great work being done and documenting, for example, defense supply chains. Because, of course, the DoD is maybe a little bit more attuned of potential threats to the sustainment of their capability to defend our country. This current crisis just made that more visible to the broader public. And that's a good thing that people, people now are talking about it and probably appreciate the factory close by a little bit more than they did in the past.
0: From policies in the shop floor to superheroes, <laughs> if smart manufacturing and digital supply networks provide a superpower, and you know I had to do this with your first name being Thor, <laughs> what is that superpower that you think about that digital supply networks or smart manufacturing provides a business?
1: Maybe Superman's X-ray vision because he can see through the fog and and see, see a bunch of data and then take the right conclusion from that i still
0: trying to envision you and the, the Thor suit?
1: <laughs> well, the hammer is probably not the right tool to fix the supply chain issues at that point.
0: <laughs> that's what you're frustrated about your supply chain. Issues. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> are you an optimist or a pessimist?
1: Trying to be a realist, but uh, venturing on both the uh, optimist and pessimist areas at times. I guess I, if I choose, I believe I'm an optimist overall. And apparently a talker. I can't answer that with the one word, I guess. <laughs> that's right.
0: What are books or people that stand out as significant influences?
1: Obviously, I have many people in my network that influence me greatly, both personally and professionally. But when it comes to books, um, I say Heinlein, specifically Starship Troopers and Stranger in a Strange Land, and also Huxley's Brave New World, and especially Brave New World Revisited, which are still influencing my mindset quite a bit.
0: What online resources do you recommend for further learning?
1: I personally am a huge Wikipedia nerd. Despite having my account locked for, for adding the friends quote to the Unagi site as a student, I, I literally can get lost reading from page to page, like from medieval battles on the one side to pink dolphins in the Amazon to famous uh, New Zealand rugby players. I can I can spend quite some time there, and I'm mindful of that not to open it too much. On a professional side though, I think podcasts like this or or professional societies like SME or IISE, they offer very good and high quality resources, often for free, that are accessible and digestible, I guess, because they're in small blocks. So I, I would always recommend them over watching TV. Other than that, when you really want to develop deep skill without having a like subscribe to a full scale program at a university, edX or Coursera have great programs or Kaggle for machine learning and AI you can learn at a, at your own pace.
0: Yeah, it's amazing the resources
1: out there. Appreciate you sharing. How can people find you online? Well, you can check out my personal site, which is basically my first name and last where there are many resources and links to our papers, videos, articles, and so on. And then social media like LinkedIn or my Twitter feed at Torsten Bust.
0: And everyone, you can find details for all the the items mentioned on our show notes and transcripts at emphasis.com slash IKI in our podcast section. Thor, thank you so much for your time and a very interesting discussion.
1: Thanks so much, Jeff. I really enjoyed talking to you again.
0: Everyone, you've been listening to The Knowledge Institute, where we talk with experts on business trends, deconstruct main ideas, and share their insights. Thanks to our producer, Catherine Burdett, Carrie Taylor, and the entire Knowledge Institute team. Until next time, keep learning and keep sharing.